Alright y'all come on in, take your shoes off, sit on down. Y'all listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Welcome to another edition of The Tao of Tao, the podcast where we talk about the practice and wisdom of the Chinese system of Taoism. Today, Dr. Livia Cohn returns back by the woodpile, and if you didn't know, Ms. Cohn is an Asian religions professor who has written a slew of scholarly books, currently gives traditional and historical-themed guided tours of Japan, and runs Three Pines Press. Her latest book, is called Taoist China and is an overview of the current state of the said religion and wisdom tradition under the watchful and controlling eye of the Chinese Communist Party. We start off by talking about why she decided to write this particular book at this particular time. As I'm saying in the preface of the book, um, I was in China last year in July to give lectures at a university there. And I also went and traveled a little bit to look at some Taoist sites I hadn't seen for a while. What struck me was that as you were traveling through the country or walking through Beijing, it was like all bustle and economic activity, people on their cell phone, everything seemed to be flourishing. But when you were talking to the academics and also when you were trying to use the internet at the university, it felt like extremely constricted. Like the professors were telling me how, um, especially in the humanities, they had to send in like a complete um, file of all their PowerPoints for political approval before they could lecture. And so you've got more and more restrictive feeling. And so it's like, what's going on here? You've got this economic expansion, which feels like freedom, but then you get this intellectual and cultural repression. And so when I came back, I spent a couple of months reading everything I could, lay my hands on, especially recent works on what's going on in China. So the question was, what's going on in China? And then by extension, since I do Taoism, it's like, how does Taoism fit into this? And so that's how the book came about. In the book, you have to talk about some of the negative things that the Communist Party has done and is doing. Are you worried about possibly losing your visa or your ability to travel within China? Right. Well, I do have a 10-year visa, which is good for a little more, um, for a few more years. Um, but, you know, I've, I don't have a lot of intention to be traveling back and forth to China all that much. And the thing is that a lot of the sources I'm quoting are people who are very critical of China and who are actually living there and who are going back and forth all the time. So, the answer is yes, you do want to be somewhat careful, but it's seems that they have bigger fish to fry than what would be me at this point. And um, the question is, how much worse is it going to get? So, I mean, you know, the repression is pretty strong, but and the way it seems to be heading is worse. And so, yes, you know, the idea is to stay away um, from China for a while. 
Can you talk about how Taoism has fared during the different phases since the Communist Party has taken over China in 1949? Um, well, essentially, um, organized religion in China has, especially like the popular kind of organized religion, um, has been under the gun since the beginning of the Republic, which was in 1912. And so, especially like in 1927, the Republican Party and government outlawed Chinese medicine, which I don't think you knew. No. It was considered superstitious and old-fashioned and nasty, and they wanted to do away with it. So acupuncture was actually illegal in China for a fairly short time, and it came back pretty quickly. But then they put all kinds of restrictive measures and things on there, and the same happened for organized religion. So you had, like, some groups that were, like, recovering some of the older practices, like among intellectuals, but they were not religiously trained, where the lineages and the monasteries were really considered superstitious and old-fashioned and were shut down. So those ordinations really stopped in the 30s. So when the communists came to power in the 40s, late 40s, 50s, all of this just speeded up. And so you had the collectivization, you had, you know, the, the monastic and other temple properties being confiscated and nationalized. Um, you had all kinds of restrictions. And so it got tighter and tighter. And then by the mid-60s, when the Cultural Revolution came along, it was totally over. I mean, all the different practices were essentially totally prohibited. Every religious person had to return to be a lay person, had to go to work. A lot of people had to get married, um, even though they were supposed to be celibate monks or nuns. Um, and so, so that was until Deng Xiaoping came to power in 78, was the modernization. Things started to loosen up. And it wasn't the first, back, the first ordination of Taoists, um, it was somewhere in the early 90s. So you really have like a 60-year gap in the tradition. And there's not really many people who were surviving through that. I mean, you had very few old people who would still remember the old things. And so um, in some cases, Westerners who had been collecting materials like Michael Sasso they went back and taught the Taoists their own tradition because it was lost in China. The um, Since the 90s, is a very good book by Adeline Heru, which we published with Three Pines Press. It's called World of Their Own. And it talks about this particular Taoist temple, small town in Shanxi, and how they've been recovering. Like all the temple grounds had been confiscated, the temple buildings had either been raised or desecrated, or if they were still there, they had been like, you know, painted over so you wouldn't see any of the traditional frescoes. People were living in there, or they were kindergartens, or they were army barracks. And so then the monks very, very, very gradually started to make a case for that this was really religious property and should be given back to them. And then gradually, you know, the people moved out and it got back to them. 
and then money was found by donors and also with some state support. And then tourism started to come in and foreign tourism started to come in and especially um, East Asian like Japanese tourists who really wanted to see religious sites. They were a big factor in um, sort of giving an impetus, an impulse towards restoration. And then gradually things were were restored and being rebuilt. And so, so we're having like a rebuilding of physical properties. We're having a reconstitution of community, but it's, it's really different from what it was. So, so while the same precepts are being used now and the same rituals, it's still a new form of it. And nowadays, of course, everything is completely under state control. During the Cultural Revolution, the loss of human lives and historical artifacts was great. Was there any specific Taoist items, such as manuscripts or relics, that were lost forever that you know of? Yeah, there's, I'm sure there's quite a few things that are completely gone. Um, I mean, all, there's a lot of old temple buildings that are completely lost, um, and they're still being lost. I mean, it's, it's in the Cultural Revolution, what they do is they would whitewash over the, the frescoes and things, and but they're still discovering, even now, they're still discovering temples um, that people didn't know it was a temple. They just thought it was some kind of a public building. And then, like, the rainstorm comes, and it goes through the roof, and it starts to wash the walls, and all of a sudden, there's all these frescoes. like, oh, my God, this is not a building. This is a temple. And then they start to try and figure out what the heck it was. Um, and then, I mean, one of the questions you had in your um, list was about the region, different provinces and regions. And in 2004, we were at a conference in Shandong, and the professor, who's a Dao scholar, who um, organized this conference, he took us on this trip to these bunch of different provincial kind of temples and connected and had like uh, meetings and dinners and things with the local bureaucrats and he was trying to convince the bureaucrats not to destroy these temples because they're like Yuan Dynasty. I mean, they're like 700 years old and they had frescoes and they could be restored and they could become a tourist thing. But those local guys, they were like, they had no interest in it. They did not know what they represented. And so they wanted the land and they wanted to raise the building and build an apartment complex. And so he was trying to convince these people by bringing us as foreigners that <laughs> it was a good thing to restore. And of course, he was not successful. These things are gone. And there's like lots and lots and lots of temples and artwork and statues and things that, you know, will never be recovered. With all the major religions in China, the Communist Party has attempted to co-opt them for its own purposes. Can you talk about how this has affected Taoism specifically? There's something called the Taoist Association, which is a national and then also provincial and then also local organization. And it's essentially um, a committee that consists of like representatives of the Taoist religion, like abbots or monastic people. 
um, representatives of the community, like lay followers who um, are, you know, donors, and then also political representatives. And so the Taoist Association has, like, a very strong control, and they have rules, regulations, they publish collections of regulations of rules, they publish scriptures, they tell you what's officially sanctioned and what's okay. And so, so there's this network that goes from the capital through the provinces into the different communities. Um, so everybody sort of toes the same line. And anything that any temple wants to do has to have approval in some form or another of the Taoist Association. With their attempt to control Taoism, have they changed the message at all? Um, not in too much of, I mean, the, the Tao Te Ching is still very much an honor text, and there's certain key scriptures um, that are being chanted and that are honored. And so, so the answer is, if so, it's minimal or it's not very detectable. Um, it's more an effort at standardization. So it's not like, oh, you know, I'm having this personal revelation from Lord Lao and I'm starting this whole new movement or oh my family has been transmitted these rituals which is what's going on in other parts like in, in, in western countries where there's Chinese religion or Taoist communities or in Taiwan Singapore, Hong Kong in a free country let's put it this way that's what you have you have new developments where people go into trance and come up with new methods you have families that have, you know, been transmitted orally and in some manuscripts that are not part of the official canon. They are practicing their own kinds of rituals. There's a reinvention of ritual going on um, that matches more modern kind of needs. Um, and and none of this is happening in China. So so it's really it's not that they're changing the method, but it's they're preventing the religion from dynamically developing as it is in other places. Is the CCP, in a way, keeping Taoism pure by doing this? I think they're keeping it ossified. I mean, they're making it into something that really becomes, has a fairly limited relevance, you know, so it doesn't become popular. It's like it, it, it becomes like Catholic dogma today, I mean, you know. It seems that all kinds of various different political philosophies, many diametrically opposed to each other, such as Marxism and libertarianism, somehow still stake a claim in Taoism. Can you talk about how, especially the Marxists, see themselves as an inheritor of Lao Tzu Zhuangzi and company? Oh, well, that was like in, in the, in the, in the forties and thirties and forties, the philosophers, um, when they were coming to terms with Marxist ideas and also trying to connect, um, Western philosophy to Chinese thought. So people were engaging in this kind of dialogue and, and trying to, to sort of create a bridge to Western thinking. And so yes, there are some thinkers. Um, that were um, there's a big, fairly strong movement that uh, connected the concept of qi, you know, like vital energy, 
which of course is at the root of Chinese thought, at the root of Chinese medicine, also at the core of Taoism, they connected the idea of qi as to be like materialistic. So qi is like um, a form of energy that everything consists of, so it's like a form of matter. And so, hey, here we have materialism in these ancient um, in these ancient texts, and so um, Taoism became like an expression of this materialist kind of thing. And then you have um, the Tao Te Ching uh, criticism of hierarchies and criticism of strong, um, aggressive military kind of activities, and so um, that was pulled into this whole doctrine of. Um, liberating the people and, you know, opening the world to the proletariat and this whole idea that, you know, there's a revolutionary thinking. And so that was connected to the Tao In your book, you introduce us to a few very interesting figures in Taoism. Can you tell us about, first of all, Lu Xiaogan? Okay, Lu Xiaogan is an academic um a professor who's a philosophy scholar, and um, he grew up in, in um, I think, Tianjin, near Beijing, and then when he was ready to go to university, he was sent into the countryside during the Cultural Revolution, and he ended up, you know, to learn from the peasants kind of thing. He ended up in Inner Mongolia and had some pretty rough years. And then when the Cultural Revolution led up, he made his way to the capital of Inner Mongolia and enrolled at the university there and got an MA and then got accepted into Beijing Peking University and became a professor. And he spent some time in the U.S. Um, at a number of different places, including Harvard and Princeton. And then... Um, he ended up getting a job in Singapore, worked there for a few years, I don't know how many, and then the bulk of his professional career he spent at Chinese University in Hong Kong, and he retired from there about five, six years ago. Um, and his whole, he was a student of Taoism, he did um, ancient Taoist philosophy, not the religion, and he studied mainly Zhuangzi, and he did a lot of textual studies, which is the kind of thing that is, you know, um, perfectly fine and condoned, and it's nice. You know, you can speculate about what's, how certain characters came about and how certain what certain words mean, and that's all very nice. But then he also um, expressed in a number of articles um, it's, it's not a direct, but like an indirect criticism where he sort of says, you know, the government should stay out of people's hair and they should just practice non-action and they should let people go and do their own thing. And if people are able to make their own decisions, they do a better job than if they're guided by some weird bureaucrats and some strange policies. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so he explained all this in a sort of scholarly kind of way, but it's definitely a critical attitude. Um, but he never really became an open, you know, like dissident or anything of that sort. And then after his since his retirement, he's been he, he's now at Beijing Normal University. He's been with a number of different schools in the mainland, and he's a very highly respected person, and he's very careful was how he deals with authority. And um, like we had the Dallas conference at this university where he is a professor, and he stayed away from it because right now 
connecting to Westerners is not politically smart. So we invited him to be a speaker. He said, absolutely not. <laughs> no. When the conference actually happened, he made sure he was somewhere else. Were you able to meet with Liu Xiaogan at a, at a different time? I did see him, I think, last year. When, when I was there at the same university um, giving lectures, he was also one of the lecturers, and so I did see him. He's a very nice man, but it's, it's you know, he's, he's very sensitive. I mean, he suffered under this regime, and so he's very sensitive, you know, not to step on anybody's toes. He has not been harassed for his criticism, but like when he was a teenager, he was sent into the countryside and he had these miserable, miserable years where he was eating pig food and, you know, it was bad. And his health, I mean, a lot of these people who ended up being, you know, sent into the countryside, I mean, their health never recovered. I mean, these people were maimed for life. You know, intestinal problems from eating all this horrible food and I'm being too cold. I mean, there's all kinds of, of ailments that people have. And the psychological damage is massive. Okay. And how about Liao Yibu? I really didn't know too much about him. I just love his book, um, which is called The Corpse Walker. And it's, um, it's a record of stories. It's really an absolutely spectacular book. Um, and it's a, it's a record of stories of sort of outcasts or outsiders in modern Chinese society. And he somehow, you know, interviewed these people and then wrote up these stories. And the book is totally and utterly prohibited on, in mainland China. I mean, again, Hong Kong and in Taiwan. But it's, and it was smuggled out and it was translated. And he himself is a poet and he used to be like a beatnik kind of, um, hang out and get drunk and have fun kind of guy. And then the Tiananmen, um, event happened in 1989 and he got sort of pushed into or sort of galvanized into political action and like about 10 hours before they actually started to shoot in Tiananmen Square, he he was sort of listening, to, he was in Sichuan at the time, so he was listening to all this on the radio. Um, he wrote a poem called Massacre, so he was envisioning, predicting that that's what was going to happen and it did. And the, so the thing that sort of went viral and then the Communist Party hated it and decided it was, like, subversive. And then he, they put him into prison. And he, he published a record of his prison experience, which just came out in English about a couple of years ago. And then after they released him from prison, he sort of kept on the fringes of society. That's when he started to meet all these people that he writes about in The Corpse Walker. And... um and then he got harassed, and he was under house arrest for a while, and then he couldn't really make a good living. He kept applying for exit permit, and he was denied. And then eventually, after like 15 attempts in 2011, they let him out, and he now lives in Germany. And um, he was really good friends with Liu Xiaobo, who was the Nobel Peace Prize winner, um, who was given the Nobel Peace Prize for his poetry, and who died last year. And um, this is a name that you will never, ever find on the Chinese Internet that is completely and utterly erased from modern Chinese awareness. 
Right, and the phrase empty, empty chairs. The empty chair, exactly. And when, when the Nobel Prize ceremony happened, it was the empty chair. The words empty chair were not allowed on the Internet. I mean, it was just like... But his wife, um, who survived, and she never did anything wrong. She never wrote any poetry. She never engaged in anything political. She never did it. She was just married to the guy. And they kept harassing her, and she was, like, close to committing suicide in April of this year. And then, you know, there was, like, and um, Wu was, like, instrumental in, in, in activating an international response to her plight. And then the German chancellor stepped in, uh, stepped in. And just a few weeks ago, she managed to get out. She's now in Berlin. You talk about Wang Liping, who has a story that's really fascinating. It's almost like a Hollywood movie. Well, I'm not sure how much of that story is true. Oh, dang. <laughs> ah, so that's why it sounds like a movie. So, yeah, well, that's why it's, it's... I mean, what we know about Wang Liping is that he, he grew up in the northeast and where it's really cold, like uh, up in Liaoning, in the far northeast of China. And that one way or another, and the story that's being told in this book that's been translated by Thomas Cleary, which is called Opening the Dragon Gate, and it makes a good read. I mean, it's a very fascinating read. Um, according to this story, there were three Taoist masters from Shandong who with some kind of supernatural uh, whatever method picked up on this guy who was a teenager in the far northeast and they came and they stayed near his house and they started training him. And then after he graduated from high school, it also was the time of Cultural Revolution, um, they sort of tried to escape, to stay away from all this um, wild, you know, the Red Guards destroying things and all that activity. So they were hiding out in the mountains and he kept being trained. And then after the Cultural Revolution, they went to a number of major centers then eventually they dispersed, and he went home, and they went back to their monastery in, in Shandong, on Laoshan. And then he just was an ordinary worker for a while, and then eventually he started to, to teach um, internal alchemy and the Taoist spiritual meditation practices. And he's good. There's just no question. I've taken, um, I was at a seminar with him a few months ago. He, there, there's some serious power there. And he's he's very well informed, and he's got the tradition. And so, uh, whether it happened the way it's described in the book, or whether he trained in just some ordinary place with some ordinary guy, doesn't really matter. He does have a lot of um, good energy, and he's got a very good grip on the tradition. And so, he in that ni- 1990s in the Qigong fever. Um, period when all these different energy Qigong masters were out there and large numbers of people were practicing these things, he became extremely popular and he had these seminars with 5,600 people and they all went into trances and they all learned his meditations and all that stuff. And then when Falun Gong happened in 1999, um, his movement too got totally smashed and he had to sort of go back to being an ordinary layperson. And he's been very, very, very slowly coming out. In 2008, 
he started teaching again. And then there was a group of people from Europe, from Romania in particular, who started to go to his um, center, which is up, like I said, in, in the northeast, in Shenyang. And um, so they became his disciples. And so he now has a following in Europe, and he has a group. It's a Dragon Gate group in California, in the U.S., and he also runs seminars in China. But it's, um, again, like the, 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 the development has been that up to until about 2009, 2010, China was very open and it was much more, much easier to go back and forth and to do, um, spiritual things. And since then it's been continuously sort of been tightened and more restricted. So what he teaches in China is completely different from what he teaches overseas. And if you want to get a good quality Taoist training, you have to go to, you can't do it in China anymore. You have to go outside. You mentioned Falun Gong. When, when I was living in China, all I knew was the propaganda, which made them out to be a crazy, murderous cult that were setting themselves on fire in the public square and all that. But eventually, I would meet some practitioners who would secretly identify themselves to me, and I thought they were very kind. And when I came back to America, I met a couple other practitioners of Falun Gong. In fact, I've had them on this podcast, and they seem all right to me. So I'd like to know your take on Falun Gong and also what's your opinion on how they claim some aspects of Taoism in their own practices. There are some Taoist elements in there um, in that like, like the idea of the Falun is this wheel of the Dharma and it's this energy, spiraling energy thing that's in your abdomen and that's really the Taoist elixir field. So they're activating the elixir field. And then they have um, these practices, which are partly it's like sitting cross-legged in meditation, which is Buddhist. But then there's also quite a few physical movements which come out of the Taoist tradition. So you're working with Qi, and so there, it's an amalgamation of Taoist and Buddhist um, concepts and practices. It started in 92. Um, when Li Hongzhi, who's the founder, um, created this particular system, and and it was again part of that Qigong fever time, and people were hungry for spiritual practices that had a practical application. They were also hungry for ethical teachings because there was no, and there still really isn't a good ethical system in China, and you know the communist ethics was no longer valid. And this whole money-making thing was not appealing to everybody. So the the ethical teachings, you know, forbearance and patience and humility and the things that Falun Gong teaches were very attractive. And then the other part was that once people started to actually do these exercises, and they had to be really serious, you're supposed to really sit in full lotus, which is really hard. So, but people would be very persistent and they would do them like one to two hours every day. They experienced amazing health effects. I mean, it is healthy once you start, you know, you, you get your mind into a more ethical kind of thinking so you're not carrying grievances and frustrations as much 
and you get your body exercised, you get healthier. So he ended up getting this huge following, which was fine. And the people are very kind and they're very nice and it's decentralized. So you have like a local person who becomes like the local convener and then they meet like once a week and they do their practices and it becomes this thing. So that's all nice and good. The problem started when the government, because there were so many of these groups and there were so many of these people who were getting into these spiritual and religious kinds of activities, the government required, they put in some kind of administrative thing where you had to register with like the national, it's, it's sort of the equivalent of the Taoist Association, like a Qigong kind of um, organization that you had to register with, and then you had to fill out forms and behave yourself in certain ways. And Falun Gong very simply refused to do that. And they just went against, when the government said go left, they went right. So they went against whatever the government was telling them. So they were outlawed in uh, 1996 which is three years before the crackdown, they became illegal because they were no longer, they were not complying with the rules. Um, but there were so many Communist Party members and local officials who were members of Falun Gong that that ban was never actually instituted. They kept on doing this, and then they became very aggressive. So if somebody said something bad about Falun Gong, there is this belief, which was especially strong in the late 90s before the millennium thing, that Li Hongzhi had magical powers, was this incarnation of this big um, Buddhist figure, and that, you know, his followers would be the chosen people to survive the big millennium change, and, and that they were, like, better than everybody else. So there is that millennial, aggressive, apocalyptic millennial kind of, tinge to it. And so when Falun Gong followers, when somebody somewhere would publish or make a radio broadcast or publish an article and say, you know, um, yeah, this is it's, a, it's an interesting practice, but, you know, they're having these some weird ideas, then they would stage protests in front of this office of this guy, or they would harass his family, or they would you know, I don't know, throw eggs on his car, whatever they were doing. It was nasty. It was not nice. And then in 1999, a student newspaper in Tianjin, in the, like June of 1999, published an article critical of Falun Gong. And again, pressure was put on the person and on the paper to retract it and to destroy that particular issue and to not do that. And at first they said, yeah, yeah, it's okay, you know, it doesn't really, yeah, we'll, we'll give in and it's fine. But then they sort of turned around and they say, you know what? We have the right to say what we think. So they published, they, they said, no, we're not retracting. And that's when the word went out that, you know, a protest should be held. And they all assembled in Tiananmen Square, like a hundred thousand of them, to protest this particular publicity. And that's when the Prime Minister, Jiang Zemin, you know, finally said, you know, hey, these people are outlawed already, and this is not acceptable. We cannot have mass protests like this. And that's when they started to crack down. So what I want to make clear is that you have 
like three different things. You have the actual practice of Falun Gong, which has an ethical dimension, and the health practice, which is fine. You have this whole apocalyptic, um, savior, messianic, Li Hongzhir is a god, and we're following him, and the only book we read is his book, which is like really cultic, which is very problematic. And then you have the political activities where they're actually harassing people when they say something negative about them and where they get into this whole political thing, which in China is just, don't do it. It's just not, totally not in the cards. Before we go, I was curious to see how your publishing company, Three Pines Press, is doing these days. Good, very good. We're, we're having, yeah, we got my book out. We're having a new book coming out in October, which is called Internal Alchemy for Everyone. And it's um, by a Chinese person who lived as, like from Hong Kong. And he was at a university, Hong Kong and Taiwan. And he practiced internal alchemy for many, many years. And he's sort of developed um, a very good appreciation of it. And he's making it very accessible and very simple. And so I'm very excited about that. And we have another project on internal alchemy and art, which is uh, features the art of a New York artist of Chinese descent who practically specializes in um, depicting religious themes, let's say. So, and she got really interested in Taoism. So she has some very interesting art in depicting um, different phases and ideals of internal alchemy. Um, and so, yeah, we have a number of very interesting projects coming up, so it's very exciting. If you'd like to look into Dr. Cohn and others' writings on Taoism, go to threepinespress.com. Or, if you'd like to go to Japan with Miss Livia, check out her website, liviatoursjapan.com. And Livia is spelled L-I-V-I-A. Also, if you'd like to hear more about Taoism in general, you might listen to past episodes of In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, including number 54, where Dr. Cohn first came on to visit, or number 41, where Sister Sunhei Kim, another author from Three Pines Press, talks about her book looking at the relationship between Taoism and Christianity called The Gourd and the Cross. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile, it's produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter by looking up Spun Counter Guy. If you want to say hi or send us nasty words, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. And you can find this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher and podbean.com. We'll see you on the flip side.